0: All right, this is Come Follow Me week, what is it, 24, Luke 22, and John 18. This will be pretty short because we've actually digested most of this text into previous episodes. But a couple of things uh, caught my notice that that probably ought to be attended to. Um, So, uh, in Luke 22, uh, rehearsing the the, uh, institution of the sacrament and events, In the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, brought to my mind some uh, a research study published, I think, by Matthew Gray. I think is the it's a BYU professor that working archaeologist and a professor of religion at BYU um, that uh, that didn't uh, (coughs) didn't excavate this area, but had an interest in it when he became aware of it um, a bunch of years ago um, at the Jerusalem Center. And it's the Gethsemane Grotto. Um, what's a grotto? Well, it's a cave, I think. Basically, it's a cave. What's the difference between a grotto and a cave? I don't know. Um, grottos are Catholic caves. They got to be. Uh, all of them seem to be that. So, <laughs> that's a joke. Well, what is this place? Well, I I've been to the Mount of Olives, and oh, in fact, very near to the Orson Hyde Memorial Park. Um, the place where Orson Hyde stood to dedicate uh, the Holy Land for the return of the Jews, which, by the way, there were Jews living in the Holy Land then. Eh, maybe it might have been a couple dozen, you know, but not many. Um, that was a thing that Latter-day Saints were talking about and nobody else seemed to be talking about at the time. He dedicated the land for the return of the Jews. So you can see why, um, why there's kind of a general interest in that, in that um, uh, event there. Even if they don't know that much about its significance, its significance. So there's that, and then there's some areas of really, really old olive trees that have just kind of been maintained there, uh, which is kind of surprising in a bustling city. Uh, but uh, but these gardens where you can go and you know, in in fr- from amidst these uh, olive trees, these ancient olive trees, um, look out across at Jerusalem, at the Dome of the Rock, and stuff so like that. It's quite impressive and uh, you know quite understandably people uh like to like to pray there and, and meditate and sing and things like that i think i think actually the mormon tabernacle choir uh at the time now uh since uh, renamed the uh tabernacle choir at temple square i think did a concert there so so it's an impressive place okay so that's the impressive places and there's churches all over there so now let's talk about an unimpressive place right nearby, and I and I never went to this place, but I have now located on the map, and I've and I've seen how it relates geographically you know, uh, topographically and and all. Um, this grotto of Gethsemane. It's important for a couple reasons, and it was and it was it caught uh, this professor Gray's attention for a couple reasons. Number one. The name Gethsemane right it's the olive pl- olive press the place of olive press and uh, and in the Luke account it's uh, uh, it's uh, a, a, an area of agricultural it's a garden I guess it, it really is kind of like a area designated for agricultural work attractive of, of land uh, set to agricultural purposes really kind of the real general name for it not a garden in like the sense of a pleasure garden or something like that so those two things combined. And olive press means okay. They were processing olives there, and this was a this was a cultivated tract. Obviously, it's going to be olives, right? Um. Okay. Well, um, what did that look like? Processing, processing olives. They would take them and 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 they would run them under a stone, uh, that would crush. And pulp them, pulp these olives. And they'd have guys, you know, dumping b- baskets of, of these olives as they were picking them, dumping them into this uh, press that's, or this wheel that's turning around and crushing them to this to this mash, right? And then they'd take this mash off of there, I'm sure, you know, as the whole process is going, they take this mash, this gooey, soppy mash, and put it in baskets. And and as I understand it, they have one basket right on top of another, and then this huge weight on top that could be lowered down onto the top basket and and uh, and on to the succeeding baskets. And this huge weight presses down on this mash and forces the olive oil out to, to extrude out through. Uh, well, I mean, it causes the fibers of the of the baskets to you know relax a little bit because it's in the pressed down position instead of the pulling up position. So the the strands that make up the basket open a little bit and lets out the oil, which is then collected um, in uh, little grooves in the rock and then collected into uh, into big amphora, you know, big pottery and then stored. Okay. All this had to be done, as it happens, in a climate-controlled environment. <laughs> well, your only climate-controlled environments in the ancient world is a cave, right? So this was done in caves, and how do we know that? Well, they've excavated a ton of other um, olive presses, uh, and the, these olive processing stations. Right? And, and it's cool, because even the storage areas... Will have that they'll be they'll be built on the rock, and the rocks have grooves and gullies in them, so that anything you know somebody stumbles and breaks an amphora of olive oil, it all just runs down to the center of the room and down to the bottom of the room where it gets collected back up and put into put into pots again, you know, and they can be stored there until they're ready to be shipped or whatever. So all this is done in a cave, and there's this grotto the Grotto of Gethsemane, where pilgrims have been coming for thousands of years, presumably, uh, at least since the Middle Ages. And, uh, and and it's kind of interesting because there was a, back in 1950-something, 56 maybe it was, there was, a, there was enough of a flooding, and I assume flooding coming down from above, that, the, that this grotto, this Grotto of Gethsemane, which is a naturally occurring uh, cave, You know, it was—it wasn't hollowed out by human hands; it was naturally occurring. Well, it flooded. They had built a chapel in there, whole floor and curtains, and you know, candles and lamps and everything like that, just like any other place in, um, in, you know, in in uh, Jerusalem. uh, Way back in the Middle Ages, stars painted on the ceilings and things like this, paintings and tapestries and whatnot. Well, it flooded. And so uh, the very forward-thinking Franciscan monks who uh, who ran the, the grotto thought, well, this is going to have to be closed for a while. Nobody's ever excavated this. Let's get someone to do it. So they hired an Italian guy uh, to to uh, to excavate it. Once they you know torn up the floor and stuff like that to see what was there. And so he he cataloged at least in accordance with the. With the practices of the time, which were not super meticulously detailed like they would be today, but he he uh, cataloged enough and described things just well enough that as archaeologists got more and more familiar with other olive processing places around Roman Palestine, that they could recognize ah uh, the the Gethsemane Grove uh, grotto is a olive processing plant they can see the niche which is now behind you know paintings uh, where the beam of the press would have been um, they can they were they're able to tell from this guy's uh, drawings that uh, that here's where the where the great big uh, vat would have been for storing the mash and then and, and so forth and so forth here and and actually when he when this dude was um, Exploring and uh, digging. He, he actually, by accident, crashed through a wall that someone had built that led to all the, all the storage chambers. So then, you know, now we know, okay, well, and obviously there's olive all oil all being stored there. Uh, all the things were there. Uh, all the pieces were there. This, this was the Gethsemane. This was the Gethsemane on the, on the, on the Mount of Olives. What was a, a little bit of a surprise, and maybe a very much of a surprise, was uh, a cistern. Well, <laughs> you know, if you've been around the Holy Land, uh, you know that any anything that's dug down into the rock gets called a cistern. Well, and it makes kind of sense, right? I mean, they're trying to catch every drop of rainwater because there's not, like, plenty to go around. So it's this, it's this cavity dug into the rock at the bottom of the, you know, dug deeper into the cave with steps going down into it. Now we recognize that this is not a cistern as the original guy had described it. This is, these are the mikvot, these are the baptismal fonts. Well, Jewish style, right? Uh, But they're immersion immersion pools. What we'd call them a baptismal font is definitely... Uh, for ritual immersion, and it turns out that the workers um that the workers that were raising or that were taking care of and producing olive oil and wine, had to work. They had to do their work in a state of ritual purity. So they had to have a mikvah right right there. And in fact, this mikvah was there in the cave with them. I just think that's so fun. So then, then it kind of makes you wonder. maybe this is part of the reason why, <laughs> why Jesus and his disciples would hang out at this place. This is their their like Jerusalem, their local hangout. It's because they could whatever else happened during the day, no matter what kind of uh, disease people Jesus contacted and things like that, they could always come back in and uh, you know wash the clothes and bathe and then be clean. After that, so, um, so so then, then we uh, we have to think. Well, uh, they called it the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Olive Press. Was was Jesus in the cave when he uh, when he prayed, were his disciples waiting outside, or was it the reverse? Was Jesus um, outside and the disciples were, you know, resting in the cool of the <laughs> the cave, where <laughs> it would have been definitely cooler. It's it's just interesting, and I like I like this thought. Um, <clears throat> I, I like knowing that little added detail about this place, um, because it it jars you a little bit and it gives you a little bit of something extra to think about. All of our all of our portrayals of Jesus suffering in the Garden of Goof-70 are pretty much the same. He's on a rock. Uh, he's leaning against a rock, and there's an olive tree above him. Well, oh, what if he was in a cave? <laughs> I don't know. It, maybe it's not important, but to me, it just kind of a little bit of a jarring uh, thing. A little bit. Oh, we can't. I can think about this differently. Maybe the scriptures have a little extra data here that we didn't realize that paint that picture um, just slightly differently. So there's that. Um, why do we jump over to John 18? Because we, we really, as I went through this again, I, I thought, you know, we, we we've touched on each of these things with a few exceptions here, and they're and they're just here in John 18. The story of the rest is a little bit different. I don't. I'm not sure how important it is to to uh, go through that again. <clears throat> um, and, and Peter's denial is is a is a little bit different. Um. In John, because because of, uh, there's a disciple that that is known to the high priest, which is interesting. So, So this is verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple. Notice it's not the other disciple, it's another disciple. Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter was standing outside the gate because Peter was nobody, I guess. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, but saying this the second time this is going to be important, went out, spoke to the woman who guarded the gate, and brought Peter in. And that's when the woman, the first person says, the woman says, oh, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? I am not, of course. Um, so, so who is this that um who is this other disciple that's known to the high priest? There's a lot of theories. Some people say, well, it's obviously Judas. He was known to the high priest. He was negotiating with him just the day before or a couple of days before. Uh, so he, he stood in front of them and knew them. Uh Well, then why is he letting Peter in, and why isn't Peter beating his face off as you know what we know about Peter? He's liable to do. <laughs> right I, that's what I think. I don't think it's Judas. Well, is it John? See John sometimes refers to himself and we think as the other disciple or another disciple or the disciple who Jesus loves. See John never names himself in the book of John. we're just we surmise that this is John. and I think we have great reason to do so. Um, but consider consider that this could be I mean first of all John. How's he going to know the high priest? Really? He's a fisherman up in the north in Galilee. Um, he, so far as we know, he's not of a priestly lineage or anything else like that. There's nothing that would connect John that we can see legitimate in scripture that would connect him to the high priest. They didn't go to the same dinner parties. And, you know, it's just, you know, I think the key here is it's another disciple, not even meeting an apostle. But just a different, just not, not one of the apostles, a different disciple, um, and so then we start thinking about prime candidates like Joseph of Arimathea, um, and um, Nicodemus, of course. See, these are high high profile people that would have known the high priest for sure. They would have been in the part of the Sanhedrin, um, but that were disciples in secret, so it seems. Um, and and so they would have had the opportunity to let him into um a guarded area. So that's what I think, or, or someone else that we that hasn't been mentioned in the scriptures to this point, uh that uh, that was a friend to Jesus, but not a not an apostle. That's what I think. Okay. Well, we have these interviews, um, sends and then Anna sends him to Caiaphas, the high priest. And then we have uh Jesus' interview with Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Uh, they they took Jesus, this is verse 28, they took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. Um, it was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and not be able to eat the Passover. If they go in there where the Romans are, then they can't eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them, oh, nice guy, huh? And said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, If this man were not a criminal, would we have handed him over to you? <laughs> right? So it's like, wait, Just just do your Roman thing. Just do your Roman thing. Kill him, right? <laughs> that seems like, a, Well, if, if he weren't worthy of death, why would we have brought him to you? Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews replied, We are not permitted. To put anyone to death. That was the that was the reason that they brought him there. That was the reason they needed the Romans to do it, um, because they weren't allowed to. And again, as we've said before this this doesn't this doesn't count. You know, spontaneous vigilante justice episodes. I don't think those were ever um, you know punished by the Romans, but official judicial puttings to death. Uh, They were not allowed to do. The Romans reserved that for themselves. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, "'My kingdom is not of this world. "'If my kingdom were of this world, "'my followers would be fighting "'to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. "'But as it is, my kingdom is not from here.' "'Pilate asked him, "'So, you're a king?' "'Jesus answered, "'You say that I'm a king? "'For this I was born, "'and for this I came out of the world.' Testify the truth. Now, th- this phrase is just so is so funny. Thou sayest that I am, or you say that I'm a, that I'm a king. Thou sayest that I'm a king. And the same thing, same answer he gave uh, in front of the high priest. Um, Art thou the son of God? Be straight with us. Thou sayest that I'm the son of God. Right. Uh, the closest that I can come to uh, an expression that makes sense today is you said it. Right? Are you a king then? You said it. (laughs) Well, I was really just kind of asking, but you get the point, right? You said it. I think that's what he's saying. He's not saying you already know that I am. You know, it's just no. There you go. So uh, uh, for this purpose, for for this I was born, and for this came I into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And I love this. I love this. this is one of my favorite lines in the scriptures pilate asked him what is truth <laughs> and this is so typical because pilates going to be a very highly educated roman and what do they do well they they get greek philosophers to come and teach him as kidlets uh how to bandy about uh you know logic and things like that and and pretty much they all come out at the end going yeah there's no true, there's no ultimate reality or truth, is there? There can't be because it can be argued both ways, and so who cares? We'll just do what we want. That, that, that's that's a fairly typical that's a fairly typical course to arrive at. I'm just going to do what I want. <laughs> uh, the other common one that humans, the other common course that people uh, use to arrive at the decision, I'm just going to do whatever the heck I want, is. Well, I'm not even going to investigate the arguments one way or the other about what truth is and what truth might be and how you'd find out and how you'd know it. You know. So I'm just going to do what I want. But, but the Romans, they would spend, if they spent a lot, most of their education probably is devoted to what would have, what would be called philosophy. So when Pilate says, what is truth? I mean, there's just so much in that. There's just like, there's like Greco-Roman, Meets Hebrew in that sentence. He's saying, "You know, why? Why get so worked up about this? What is truth? You can't really know the truth. Our smartest guys have been working on it for hundreds of years, and they have a lot of fun argu- arguing. But really, really, let's let's just talk about what's practical here. This would be the this would be the typical kind of Roman approach to it." Yeah, that's the truth. Let's talk, let's be practical here. <laughs> so, uh, I, I just love that, this little moment of, of, uh, the prophetic tradition of, of Israel meets the sophic and uh, philosophical tradition of Greco-Roman, of the Greco-Roman world. But we must move on. After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted in reply, Not this man, but Barabbas. Or Barabbas, right? Now, Barabbas was a bandit. And this, this irony, you've just got to love. You have just got to love this, um, because who is Barabbas? Okay, he's a bandit, uh, and and of course remember that uh, there's a difference between a petty thief. He's not just a thief. The thief breaks into your house, he steals some stuff. Hopefully, you know you don't stab him. Hopefully, he doesn't stab you, and he gets out your window with some stuff. A bandit is someone that is trying to overthrow the government, right? These are these are um, we say they're gangs in a way. They're, they're rivals for the government. Uh, so, so he's the guy, he's the kind of guy that Roman the, the Romans really were you know, trying to find and put to death. And he gets released. But, but, and, and Jesus is crucified for being what he's not, which is any kind of threat to the Roman rule. But the real painful irony here, with Barabbas, is what Bar Abbas means. Bar, uh, so Ben Ben in uh, in Hebrew is son. Bar, in Syriac, which is the language that the Jews were speaking at the time, in fact, were ever since they came back from the Babylonian captivity. Bar, then in uh, in Syriac is son. Abba, we've heard before, his father. Barabbas means son of the father. So we have these two guys standing there. One really is the son of the father in heaven, and the other is called Barabbas, called son of the father, but is a a, a ruffian and a bandit. And who do they condemn? They can they release the fake. <laughs> Ironically named, and they and they crucify the real Bar Abbas, which was Jesus. Well, that actually brings us to the end of this week's reading, and boy, it, it just feels um, like not enough. But you know what? If there's things that have struck you in this week's reading, um. Let's talk about them this week because we're all getting together for a family reunion. And that'll be a ton of fun. And we can always take a moment to talk about the Scriptures. Kids, I love you. Oh, how I love you. I want your Scripture study to be as rich and rewarding and as as much an intellectual endeavor as a spiritual one and as much a spiritual endeavor as an intellectual one. Sometimes an emotional one. But always a rich and rewarding one. I love Jesus Christ. i was so thankful to take the sacrament and ingest that little symbolic piece of him and have him be knitted into the fabric of my cells, I hope, like that. That's the way I think because, of course, I'm a doctor. To drink that little symbolic portion of his blood and have it flow through me. And uh, because I surely need the strength. I love Jesus. And I hope all of us can just grow in our love and appreciation for him. God bless you. I pray for you in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.